For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson. And in this latest readout video from our free Wednesday wake-up email newsletter, to which you should subscribe, as you should also contribute to support our work if you don't already, we finally bid an unfond farewell to the COP28 climate conference in Dubai. Oh no, some may say, we're not done with it. On the contrary, quote, COP28 strikes historic deal to transition away from fossil fuels, end quote, says Euronews Green. And Reuters goes with, quote, the COP28 United Nations Climate Summit clinched a historic climate deal on Wednesday, end quote, while the prating coxcombs at Canada's Ministry of Environment and Climate Change crowed, quote, Canada contributes to historic outcomes on climate ambition and clean energy at COP28, end quote. Yeah, right. And after an almost identical theatrical performance a year ago in Egypt, journal activists pronounced COP27 historic. But does anyone remember what for? Anyone? Well, we'll help them out. See, quote, COP27 strikes historic climate compensation deal, but no progress on emissions, end quote. Oh, really? We believe the part about no progress on emissions. But as for this historic climate compensation deal, to borrow a phrase from Plunkett of Tammany Hall, could a search party find it today? If it tried, it might instead stumble across this fossilized headline, quote, With the bang of a gavel at the COP26 summit in Glasgow, diplomats struck an agreement that called on governments to return next year with stronger plans to curb emissions, end quote. Which evidently even the searchers at COP27 couldn't find, since the latter featured, quote, no progress on emissions, end quote. So, on to FLOP28 and the annual COP pantomime, as NetZeroWatch dubbed it, and Roger Pielke Jr.'s terse summary, quote, COP ARC, high hopes, evil obstructors, brink of collapse, ray of hope still, overtime, exhausted negotiators, historic text, let's do it again next year, end quote. And they will, and nothing will happen, but it will be historic. As former Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott wrote in Canada's National Post, quote, Taking place in one of the world's fossil fuel hubs, a city sultanates so prodigal in its energy use that it boasts indoor ski slopes in the desert furnace, the just-concluded climate jamboree in Dubai could hardly avoid a note of climate realism, end quote. To which we're tempted to jeer, wanna bet? But Abbott has a point. Because a key quotation in this piece is from Saudi Arabia's energy minister, saying if any political leader really believes in the phase down or phase out of fossil fuels, quote, let them do that themselves, and we will see how much they can deliver, end quote. And at COP29 or 39 or 109 or however long it takes, we can do a stock take of the results. Still, if you're a climate politician, jaw-jaw is better than work-work. Thus, Canada's Environment Minister Stephen Guilbeault spent $140,000 of other people's money to take a seven-person delegation to a two-day Chinese Communist gathering on the environment. And it's not as though he had anything urgent to do at home, like actually reducing emissions. That stuff is for the drudges whose taxes pay for his jaunts. The clueless Guilbeault also recently attempted to excuse a delay in announcing the actual details of yet another glorious policy triumph by saying, quote, no government has ever put in place regulations to ensure that the oil and gas sector reduces its overall pollution. It's never been done, end quote. What insolent rubbish! How does he, of all people, a former environmental activist lawbreaker, not know that around 1950 there were mighty few pollution controls on industry generally, and on oil and gas in particular, but the 1960s and 1970s saw a revolution in public consciousness and successful imposition of rules about emissions of everything from sulfur dioxide to volatile organic compounds, which resulted in an astounding improvement in air and water quality throughout the industrialized democracies. 
Thibault is, of course, confusing carbon dioxide with pollution, but also his own ministry's inept self-satisfaction with the get-it-done attitude of earlier generations who knew the difference between poison and plant food. And now, a word from our sponsor. And yes, again, that's you. All the people out there who are already backing our work and all the people who are subscribing. More than 84,000 of you on YouTube alone, where we've had almost 10 million views. But we need to keep up the momentum. And that's why I interrupt to pass the hat to those of you who aren't already backers and say, please make a pledge, one time or monthly, $3, $5, $10, whatever you can afford so we can continue to push back against the climate cult and win this battle. And now, back to me. In the newsletter, we also note that scientific alarmism has jettisoned the precautionary principle for, hey, let's starve everyone, what could go wrong? With a piece, it's time to engineer the sky, saying, quote, global warming is so rampant that some scientists say we should begin altering the stratosphere to block incoming sunlight, even if it jeopardizes rain and crops, end quote. Uh, well, not the crops that we eat, the ones some third world peasant is struggling to grow, and he's probably part of the overpopulation problem anyway. Meanwhile, MSN reprints a piece from Euronews entitled, quote, Macron's climate hypocrisy will sink us all, end quote, that's illustrated with a photo captioned, quote, a man sits on a hospital bed after being treated for an eye injury at Bohr Hospital, Zhonglei State, South Sudan, July 2013, end quote. So, climate change in France today is poking out eyes in Sudan in 2013. There really is nothing it cannot do. In the newsletter, we also note that Robinson Mayor of Heatmap Daily droned during COP28 about, quote, a particularly interesting report that came out in Dubai over the weekend. On Sunday, a consortium of climate science groups released this year's 10 New Insights in Climate Science, a synopsis of the most recent climate research written at the invitation of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, end quote. Bosh. The idea that a set of new findings would be rushed out just in time for COP28 is absurd, especially if you also believe that the science on climate change has long been settled. But in any case, you can't fly to Dubai to save the planet planning to do your homework on the plane or between meals. The idea of the conference was to make firm policy plans based on things that you were pretty sure you already knew. On top of which, the supposed stunning breaking news was, quote, A, Overshooting 1.5 degrees Celsius of global temperature rise is fast becoming inevitable. Minimizing the magnitude and duration of overshoot is essential. B. A rapid and managed fossil fuel phase-out is required to stay within the Paris Agreement target range. C. Robust policies are critical to attain the scale needed for effective carbon dioxide removal, CDR, end quote. Oh, great. Robust again. But how is any of that stuff new or sufficiently precise to be useful, or even really comprehensible. Look, we know the bar is low at COP conferences, and crowded, but still, surely you can do better than that. Or maybe not. The Japan Times emails us cheerfully about, quote, how simple steps can help alleviate climate anxiety. From gardening to floodproofing your home, experts say there are simple ways you can ease some of your concern, end quote. And obviously when experts say, bid care adieu. In this case, the cure for anxiety about climate change is to start a small garden. And sure, we're all in favor of gardens, big or small. But if you think a gesture that minor will fix climate change, you must also believe that it's a fairly minor problem to begin with, and so your anxiety was misplaced. The actual story hypes a public microgarden near Osaka's bustling Namba district filled with lemongrass, peppers, and fennel. 
And that kind of garden is apparently pretty common in Japan anyway, so there's no news here. Although, we do still dream of using one of those self-misting orbs to grow fresh herbs in our kitchen for the homemade salads and other delicious dishes that we, in theory, often make. But, we don't have nightmares like, quote, as climate change royals food supply chains, these kinds of spaces may become crucial, not only for the role they can play in teaching people how to improve their own food security, but also for mitigating something that's rising in step with the mercury, climate anxiety, end quote. Not that climate change is actually roiling supply chains, you understand, or that going fennel would stop it if it were. Rather, if you do this, you'll feel better about the world ending. It's all in the mind. Though for our part we say, study the science and get into your mind that carbon is not pollution, and then go and grow a nice little garden instead of, not because of, reading climate scare stories. Especially not the next one, because at the Climate Discussion Nexus were vigorous opponents of conspiracy theories of all sorts. And no, we don't care how important it makes you feel to believe that Bill Gates is targeting you personally. But how can we argue that climate zealots aren't secretly conspiring to depopulate the planet if MSN is willing to reprint a story saying, quote, human breathing harms the environment, end quote. And we shudder to think that even modern journalists might be unable to see the limited options available for dealing with that issue. On a calmer note, in the newsletter we also continue our ECS in the Real World series with a paper by Nicholas Lewis and Judith Curry from 2015 checking how updated data in the then newly published IPCC 5th assessment report might affect empirical ECS estimates and also whether the warming hiatus prior to 2015 was having much effect on those estimates. And their analysis yielded a new ECS best estimate of 1.64 degrees Celsius and said that it wasn't a fluke due to the hiatus that pretty much any time span they looked at gave them the same answer. Now, here's a hot item. Every time you hear that this or that year is the warmest in a thousand years, or 10,000, or 11 bazillion, please remember that we have no thermometer records for most of the world before about 1880. So just about everything prior to that is based on proxy indicators like tree ring widths. Which is fine. Science does the best that it can with what it has in a spirit of humility and frankness. Except, in this case, the wizards of tree ring reconstruction haven't told the public that they just throw out all the data they don't like. When they collect tree ring samples in the woods and get them back to the lab, they do what they euphemistically call pre-screening, and they only keep those they deem reliable, even if it means discarding most of what they collected. Which would be fine if reliable meant they had confidence in the way they were collected, but it doesn't. It means they confirm the approved narrative of an upward 20th century trend. It's like a drug trial that only counts data from people who got better. But 20 years ago, Stephen McIntyre of hockey stick busting fame heard about some Alaskan tree ring data being hidden by a scientist named Gordon Jacoby, and he tried unsuccessfully to get his hands on it. Jacoby died in 2015, but McIntyre only just stumbled on an online archive where he'd quietly posted the secret record instead of prudently deleting it. And it blows the IPCC version of climate history to smithereens. This chart shows the data in a form called a ring width index, RWI, which according to orthodox theory is a measure of temperature. And as you can see, it shows a rapid warming after about 1000 AD that peaks in the early 1100s, and then this, yeah, medieval warm period yields to a late 14th century cold era, which cycles in and out of cold periods before concluding in the 1970s on a cold note, with the 20th century being nothing out of the ordinary. 
It's clearly an inconvenient data series, and McIntyre's post recounts Jacoby's rebuffs of his efforts to get the data, including the appallingly frank, quote, if we get a good climatic story from a chronology, we write a paper using it. That is our funded mission. It does not make sense to expend efforts on marginal or poor data, and it is a waste of funding agency and taxpayer dollars. The rejected data are set aside and not archived. Which would be fine, apart from the fact that he was fibbing about the data not being archived, if by poor data he meant rings from a tree that had been struck by lightning or gnawed by porcupines so that its growth record didn't reflect general climatic conditions. But he didn't. He meant any tree ring series that didn't show 20th century warming. And the problem here is obvious to anyone with statistical training who's not in the climate cult. Suppose tree rings don't actually measure temperature at all, they just randomly wander up and down, as a set of coin tosses would do. Well, if you sample enough of either tree rings or coin tosses, a few of the series will have a 20th century part that slopes up and random noise beforehand. And if you keep those ones and toss the rest as unreliable, voila, you get a temperature record that says what you told it to say and only that which might enhance your career prospects, but it proves nothing scientific. By picking a different subset, you could just as easily prove that it's colder now than in the past, precisely as Jacoby's secret Alaskan record does. Unless, of course, tree rings are no good as a proxy period, in which case Michael Mann's hockey stick is out the arena window. And speaking of trees, from the CO2Science.org archive, we bring you a study of Mercus pine, that's Pinus mercusii, in Vietnam from 1960 to 2014. Seems that they like warmth, despite all the alarmist hoo-ha about plants desperately needing cold. For the Climate Discussion Nexus, I'm John Robson, and I know history when I don't see it. (laughs) 